0: Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. This is the Partially Examined Life Episode 290 Part 2. We've been discussing Suzanne Langer's philosophy in a new key from 1942. You know, I thought of a way of starting us off here to respond to my own point at the end of part one from Kassirer about instinct. If you're coupling your theory of us as symbolic beings with a critique of instinct, that's a way of saying that we are run more by software than by hardware, right? That if you think that human behavior is all run by a very narrow set of instincts then that sounds like we're just programmed. The hardware, the hardware is constructed so we will react in certain ways. But adding symbolism in there and saying that is just fundamental, that it's it's not a later thing that is built out of after we have basic perception and after we have thinking and then certain rarefied creatures can symbolize. No, symbolization for us at least is in there right at our first moments of taking in sensory information that's a way of potentially freeing us when we're talking about human motivations from saying that it's all hardwired, that symbols can enter in various ways and seriously derail us from what we would be doing so-called naturally.
1: I understand why you would pick the hardware versus software version and then say that we're sort of moving symbols over to the hardware side. But this is where I think that this levels of processing, this levels of software, and the complication of where does software end and where does hardware begin comes into play. If there's something like a processing of raw photon into a basic thing, which may be not even denoted, but is just a pattern, that's a lot of processing that's happening. And where that's happening and how early that is just to be clear, Langer doesn't go down this direction exactly, particularly like where in the mind and it's different levels and it's different layers of sophistication are these layers of processing happen? And is there something like the pattern recognition of a thing happening at a lower level that effectively is at the visual cortex? And I don't know enough about it myself, but I think that at the very least, she's making the a distinction that if we were to use a kind of computer analogy, is that there's way more uh, spectrum on levels of processing and a much blurrier distinction between what you would mean by hardware and what you'd mean by software. If you even have a mechanical system that takes one set of inputs and turns them into a more complicated set of outputs, is that software? It's processing right? I can have a mechanical calculator, right? And there are all kinds of biological mechanical systems that are taking signals and transforming them into other signals. Is that hardware or is that software? So I think it's way blurrier than,
2: and she intends it to be way blurrier. Mm-hmm. Mark, I was the point of what you were saying, you were trying to get at the flexibility that symbolism gives us?
0: Yes, but Dylan rightly responded that you can't say symbolism equals software equals flexibility because you could have any variety of software when she's also made the point that symbolism is built into the hardware, in which case it's presumably not flexible. Symbolization itself becomes more instinctual than a hardware-software dichotomy analogy would suggest.
2: The presentational stuff is the material for symbolism, right? But it doesn't mean that discursive symbolism isn't as flexible as we've th- think it is just because it's built in from the ground up. She gives us a good account of what's so flexible about symbolism. Maybe we should talk about that a little bit. You know, and it starts with this whole idea of a picture, which I think helps us maybe with the presentational stuff as well, eventually. But this is the Wittgensteinian idea, right? So I think Many people, when they hear about the correspondence theory of truth, if the truth of a proposition is supposed to rest on its correspondence to a fact or a state of affairs, how does that work? And people often think the proposition is supposed to be a copy, you know, and then you get into all sorts of problems of what that would mean and how that's impossible. The Wittgensteinian idea is that, yes, a proposition in a way works like a picture, but a picture itself is not just a copy. So her account of a picture I thought was very useful. Because pictures are themselves symbolic. They really are just analogies where you basically get analogous patterns. You know, If you take a state of affairs out there in the real world, say the cat being on the mat, and then you draw a picture of it, you're not just making a copy. You're making an isomorphic structure, right? So there's something about the structure of the paint that's on the canvas, which is isomorphic to... What's happening out there in the real world? And it doesn't have to be exact to do the work. You know, it could be a diagram where the cat looks like a, it's just two bubbles with the tail, right? And the ears. Or it could be a very, very detailed cat, at which point you get more granular. And so you get more correlations in the analogy, right? More things line up between the picture and the outside world. But one of the really interesting things about actual pictures is that well there's two things i want to say is that pictures are symbols they work actually symbolically through that isomorphic structure and so they are a good way of understanding how propositions might line up from, with the world but also they're much more inflexible than linguistic symbols because you have to put all the relational stuff into relations within the picture Whereas in language, you can use names for relations. The names are like variables,
1: and the picture itself is like an instance.
2: And what that allows us to do is that, you know, so she'll say on page 60, the trick of naming relations instead of illustrating them gives language a tremendous scope. One word can thus take care of a situation that would require a whole sheet of drawings to depict it. Consider the sentence, your chance of winning is one among a thousand of losing. Imagine a pictorial expression of this comparatively simple proposition. First a symbol for you winning, another for you losing, pictured a thousand times, and so on. And then she can get into all the problems with, with all that. So discursive symbolism is actually, in a way, much more powerful than pictorial symbolism.
0: Mm-hmm. I want somebody to do, uh, some photoshopping. Uh, so page 56 is that thing about how the drawing, the little sketch of a rabbit and this little sketch of a cat can actually be identical, except that the rabbit has long ears. The cat has a long tail. Yet cats don't look like long tailed, short eared rabbits in reality. So I want to take, you know, go photoshop a picture of a rabbit and then like put on short cat ears. In a long cat tail and see how freaky that looks as a photograph <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa. Seth, what smarter point were you going to make?
2: <laughs> when Wes mentioned something about the representation of relations, we have the denotation, so the picking out part of the thing. We have the context. I don't know if context and relation overlap 100% or not. So this is an interesting thing. You know, this whole picturing thing comes up in the logic of signs and symbols and she's using it to talk about how wonderful and flexible discursive language use is. And then we're going to go backwards in a way and we're going to talk about presentational forms. And she doesn't really explicitly, as far as I know, relate this back to the picture stuff in the fourth chapter. Hmm. So I don't know if the symbolic quality of presentational forms is in any way related to the whole picturing account i don't think so she says a picture is a symbol you
1: know this is right after the rabbit cat stuff and she continues on to progress from considering realistic pictures versus styled pictures like diagrams and we can you know talk about where on the spectrum of realistic versus a diagram the figures on page 56 are but this gets us to the notion that it's embodying a concept which gets us straight to abstraction i mean i thought that was roughly the argument you know that picture is essentially a symbol not a duplicate of what it represents and we're getting abstract reasoning out of that though as west pointed out that you know the transformation of the i call it the pictorial symbol into words is arguably just adds more flexibility onto it even if it's not on the continuum
2: maybe let's get into chapter four she'll say our mere sense experience is a process of formulation she wants to make the case for the idea that sense experience is itself something symbolic so that there's you know she'll say out of this bedlam you know the manifold the buzzing confusion out of this bedlam our sense organs must select certain predominant forms if they are to make report of things and not of the mere dissolving sensa. The eye and the ear must have their logic, their categories of understanding, if you like the Kantian idiom, or their primary imagination. In Coleridge's version of the same concept, an object is not a datum, but a form construed by the sensitive and intelligent organ, a form which is at once an experienced individual thing, and a symbol for the concept of it for this sort of thing. So, there's a lot of gestalt psychology going on here too. Just the idea that when our experience of a presentation is not conceptual in the typical discursive sense of concept, where we've assigned a linguistic symbol, and yet it is abstract and formal, and it is, we experience things as kinds, as types. And therefore, that is symbolic, even though it's non discursively symbolic, it's still symbolic yeah so it's like on page
1: 71 that it feels like she's making that transition beforehand she's talking about you know she's sort of presenting something like a rustling account
2: she sets up the positivist account that she's going to reject yeah yeah which is that anything outside of discursive symbolism is just emotive right it's meaningless and emotive but so then the first full paragraph of 71 she sort of makes this turn She says, so
1: long as we regard only scientific and material, semi-scientific thought as really cognitive in the world, this peculiar picture of mental life must stand. And so long as we admit only discursive symbolism as a bearer of ideas, thought in this restricted sense must be regarded as our only intellectual activity. It begins and ends with language. Without the elements, at least, of scientific grammar, conception must be impossible. So, She's fundamentally saying what's going to be the problem. As we've talked about earlier, she disagrees with this. And what comes on after this is articulating how we have abstraction in this symbolic but prediscursive way.
0: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelifecom slash support. Thanks for listening.